Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This Slate TV Club podcast about Better Call Saul is sponsored by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code SAUL. That's harrys.com and the promo code SAUL. The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of Better Call Saul we're discussing before you listen to this podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. Lights start a blank and those handcuffs click. You know who to call and you better call quick. Saul, Saul, you better call Saul. You'll fight for your rights when your back's to the wall. Stick it to the man, justice for all. You better call Saul. Hello and welcome to Slate's TV Club podcast about Better Call Saul, the new AMC drama inspired by the series Breaking Bad. I'm June Thomas of Outward and I am sitting here today with Seth Stevenson. Hey, June. Caught you uh, performing a little Chicago sunroof, a simple Chicago sunroof on the way into the studio. I deny that, and I'm going to call my lawyer, Charles McGill, to uh, contest that charge. That can get you registered as a sex offender. You know, I, so I actually, I was like, is Chicago sunroof a real thing? So this is, of course, Jimmy McGill gets caught doing a Chicago sunroof, and that's why he's in Cook County Jail. I Googled it with one hand over my eyes to see <laughs> if this was like an actual thing. And it's not. The only thing I saw on like the second page of the results was someone had been caught urinating in Chicago, urinating into an open sunroof. I guess that could get you registered as a sex offender. I guess. It doesn't seem very Chicago, though. I doubt you have the sunroof open very much there, right? <laughs> Who knows? It's a summer offense. It's, yeah. not, it's not a winter crime. Yeah, slip and fall in the winter, Chicago sunroofing in the summer. So we are talking today about the third episode, Nacho. But before we get into it, I just want to point out to people that this third episode of the podcast is the last time that Slate Plus and non-Slate Plus people will get it at the same time. For the first three episodes, we released it to everyone right after the episode airs on AMC. So you could pick up this podcast, listen that night or listen on your way to work in the morning. As of next week, Slate Plus people will get it right after the show airs, but the rest of you will have to wait for 24 hours. So if you want to listen to it right after the show airs, you need to join Slate Plus. And to do that, you should go to slate.com slash Saul Plus, S-A-U-L-P-L-U-S. Seth, in episode three, Nacho, quite a bit happened. You want to do a quick uh, summary? Sure. So we open up in Cook County Jail, where Jimmy McGill has been busted for the aforementioned Chicago sunroof. Mm. And his brother, it now is clear, it is his brother, Chuck McGill, has come to represent him. And we learn more about the backstory of these two brothers. Chuck, I guess there's some estrangement there. and They Jimmy, haven't seen each other for five years. Exactly. And Jimmy had called his mother, and he's desperate. And the mother brought in Chuck, who's a high-powered lawyer, and Chuck offers to help Jimmy as long as Jimmy gets his life together. Mm. Chuck sort of uh, insists Jimmy's, you know, he's not going to get him out of here unless Jimmy makes some changes. So that's how we open up. And then uh, and then we're back uh, in, uh, well, not present day, but in 2001-ish <laughs> Albuquerque with Jimmy at the, his office at the nail, nail salon and waxing shop. <laughs> and he's calling up Kim, the blonde lawyer from HHM, Hamlin, from HHM, Hamlin, Hamlin and McGill. And... Uh, 
Jimmy is worried that the Kettlemans, this man who's embezzled perhaps from the from city government, the Kettlemans might be in trouble because Jimmy knows that criminal elements are aware that the Kettlemans have a lot of money. And Jimmy is warning Kim that, that they're in trouble. And then Jimmy wants to warn the Kettlemans that they're in trouble. So he makes some payphone calls to the Kettlemans using a bizarre contraption out of a paper. Uh, pa- paper towel roll thing with yeah. a piece of tissue paper. It's what Kim describes as his robot sex voice. And it, all that made me wonder was, Seth, do you have a robot sex voice? As far as you know, June, uh, <laughs> we all have robot sex voices. Well, voice, I don't have we? a robot sex voice. I just have a zombie-like cuddling voice. That's beautiful. Uh, and then we we uh, move along, and eventually uh, Jimmy uh, is looking for the Kettlemans. He's trying to figure out, did they flee? Were they kidnapped? Um, Jimmy sort of accidentally gets a new client, which is Nacho, who's been accused of kidnapping the Kettlemans. And Nacho says he didn't do it, and Jimmy doesn't quite believe him. But then Jimmy decides, does a little... Sherlock Holmesing and decides that so. in fact the Kettlemans have kidnapped themselves, mm-hmm. that they're just hiding um, somewhere near their house and that they weren't actually kidnapped. And at the end of the episode, Jimmy discovers the Kettlemans having a happy family camp out in their tent singing John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt next to a backpack full of millions of dollars. There was a great scene this week where Jimmy gets called into the courthouse. He doesn't really understand why, but it turns out that Nacho, the guy who tried to kind of bring him into his criminal enterprise last week, has been pinched because neighbors of the Kettlemans noticed a white van parked outside suspiciously. And so the cops brought him in. And this is a great example of how Jimmy, he starts off, he's as puzzled as the rest of us, but he kind of talks his way through to figure out what is going on. And his conversation with Nacho is typical of this, I think. Tell me the family is okay. Tell me the kids are okay. You want to tell me your thoughts and weigh in? Does this sound like a plan that you can get behind? You miserable piece of shit. You set me up. A what? You gave my score to another crew, and now you're setting me up. Uh, what the what? Did the cops beat you? Because you're talking like a person with head trauma. You think you're funny? What are you saying? Are you saying that you had nothing to do with this? That was your van outside the house. You weren't there? Yeah, I was there. I was casing the place, figuring out the best way in and out, what time they went to bed, all that. They were fine when I left. That's it. You had nothing to do with the Kettlemans. I was never in the house. (laughs) What about the blood in your van? They DNA my ride. All they're going to find is the blood of your skate rat twins, plus whatever piss and shit you leaked out when you were in there. (laughs) I'm glad we didn't actually see the contents of the van. I'm feeling very grateful for that right now. The things that leaked out? (laughs) Yes. The physical evidence, you might say. Um, Seth, we we learned a lot about characters this week, I feel. We did. First of all, we got a lot more about Jimmy's backstory. And, you know, we saw him in his element in Chicago. And he's obviously, his life is not 
together. He's getting arrested for Chicago sunroofing. I mean, who hasn't done that? But, and Chuck comes in and gives him some tough love. And it's obvious that Jimmy is the black sheep of the family to some extent, that he's a screw up, that Chuck is the good brother, who's the high powered lawyer, does everything right. So we learn a little bit more about where Jimmy's come from. And Jimmy obviously was not a lawyer at that time right. because we right. hear him begging Chuck for legal advice. Jimmy clearly has no clue what, how to navigate the halls of justice right. uh, in the way that he does now. So we learn a little bit more about that and we learn a little bit more about what kind of guy Chuck was. Chuck was much more together at that mm-hmm. time also. He was, for instance, not wearing a space blanket. <laughs> he... And he also had like newscaster hair from about 1970. I always love on television that one way that they often show the passage of time is to show that a person wore their hair differently. And I often think that in real life, people don't change their hair very much. But, you know, a man like Chuck would have changed his hair uh, in the last 20 years or so, so that it, it didn't offend me as much as it often does this time Yeah, around. I've had the same haircut since I was 12 years old. Ditto. Uh, <laughs> uh, another character that we learned a lot more about was Kim, the lawyer from HHM, the blonde mm-hmm. lawyer who um, Jimmy calls in the middle of the night from the nail and waxing salon. Uh, she's in bed, and we see a little more of their relationship, and we know that this is a bit of an intimate relationship. I think it's fair to surmise that they may have been bed buddies at some point because... She knows he has a robot sex voice. She That's a clear indicator, mm-hmm. the robot sex voice. Also, in an earlier episode, we saw Jimmy sort of grab a cigarette straight out of her mouth. It's a pretty intimate thing to do yeah. to, with someone you're not on uh, very close, perhaps even carnal terms with. So... I think, you know, it's natural to wonder at this point, will this be the romantic interest in this show? Is this show, are they going to be the David and Maddie, uh, if we can bring back a moonlighting reference? Are, are they going to be the Jim and Pam? Is this going to be the, the, the shipper's delight, as we say? Yes, I think it might be a shipper's delight. I also wonder, though, if Kim is actually going to be his Jesse Pinkman. Um, not in the sense of him tutoring her. It seems like certainly currently... She is much more settled, much more, you know, in a good place, so to speak. She is the person who helps him right now. Um, But maybe she is his moral center or the person who kind of reels him back when he goes too far. Uh, I guess it depends how much she is complicit or even just knows about what he's really getting up to. But she seems concerned about him, which is the first step. Yeah, and she's grounded in a way that he isn't. She seems together. She seems to know who she is. Her life seems in a calmer place than his yeah. life. And and she's the person he called when he had this uh, moral dilemma about whether he was getting the Kettleman's in trouble and he needed to talk it out with somebody. She's the one he trusted, and she's the one who he thought would uh, be a, a great sounding board, sort of uh, anchor him in reality. And, you know, it's funny. you met, So you mentioned who will be the Jesse Pinkman of this show. And w- so what does that mean? I mean, in Breaking Bad, we had Walter White, going off the rails morally, starting as a as a, a good guy, a, a guy who, who meant no harm to the world, and then just becoming an evil, horrific monster. And Jesse Pinkman was the guy who, okay, maybe his morals weren't absolutely ruler rigid, but he always had a heart. He always felt things. He always mm-hmm. uh, was emotionally affected when evil things happen. And so it's interesting to wonder, is Jimmy his own Jesse Pinkman? Because Je- Jimmy uh, obviously is emotionally affected by the bad things he mm-hmm. does when he sees those skateboarders' legs broken. You know, he throws up later. Like, you And know. he also pays for their legs to be set. Yeah, he's got, he's got a heart, but we know that Jimmy's going to end up 
as Saul Goodman, right. the criminal lawyer with a, basically no morals at all, basically no spine whatsoever when it comes to that stuff. And who will be the person who um, reminds him <laughs> that he has a soul? Will it be Kim? Will it be Chuck, his brother, who seems like a really sweet guy when mm-hmm. we see him in 2001 Albuquerque, if a little nutso? He mm-hmm. still seems like a very sweet guy. Or might it be Mike Ehrmantraut? Well, you know, it's interesting to me that all of those people have some connection to the law. I mean, this is a legal show. Because the thing with Kim, I was aware that she was kind of tutoring him almost in the law, but not as far as like, you know, legal paragraph 16, clause 17 type of stuff. But when Jimmy called her, in a way, it was because he was worried about somebody who wasn't even his client, but who he had wanted to be his client um, and who he now knew was a client of Kim's firm. And, and he was genuinely concerned about them. And later, when they're at the house, uh, the the abandoned house, you know, he wants her to call Howard, the, the sort of big evil partner. Um, and she says, oh, he won't because he won't want to make them seem guilty. Now, even if that saved their lives, even for their own safety, um, you know, he was all—he was only concerned about the case. So it's, it's almost as if there are questions of how to be a good lawyer that are coming up. And we know that Chuck is a good lawyer, and but he's also, as you say, messed up. So I do think, and we also know that Mike was a cop. You know, that came out pretty, we, obviously we knew it from Breaking Bad, but that came out in this show, you know, in episode three. So seems like a lot of these questions are about the law. Yeah, there's moral law. There's yeah. real politic law. Mm-hmm. You know, how law gets done in the real world in interrogation rooms and cops doing each other favors. And and um, we learned, so this was the first time that Mike came out from behind his parking lot attendant's booth where he'd been this, he'd almost just been comic relief. He'd been this recurring character who didn't have much to do except be a funny little uh, monkey wrench in right. Saul's day, in uh, Jimmy's day. Um, and now he's out from behind the booth. We learned that he was a cop and he's starting to affect the imaginations of the plot in a big way. And he's mm-hmm. obviously going to become more and more involved. And we know that's true since Mike's going to become um, Saul's uh, right hand guy mm-hmm. by the time Breaking Bad happens. And again, he is this kind of moral compass to a certain extent, because when Jimmy was complaining about Mike's absolute unbendingness around the stickers and the parking fee. Um, And he says, you know, you're making me do something. Mike says, I'm not making you do anything. Those are the rules. So it's all about, you know, following the law and, and, and not diverging, even though we, again, we know exactly which laws are going to be bent pretty soon. Okay, more in a moment. But first, we need to say thank you to this week's sponsor, Harry's. In case you don't know, Harry's is a new razor company started by two guys who wanted a better product without paying an arm and a leg to get it. Harry sells high-quality razors for about half the price of other big brand blades. Plus, they sell cool-looking handles and great shaving cream and gel. They ship for free to your doorstep. And right now, for first-time customers, Harry's will give you $5 off when you go to harrys.com and type in our promo code, SAUL. S-A-U-L. Now, I actually shaved with Harry's just yesterday, and I want to say 
It is a very high quality razor. It's got a sort of a pleasingly bulky handle, fits in your hand, feels like you've got something substantial there. Blades were nice and sharp. I had pretty raggedy facial hair that had been growing for like 10 days, maybe two weeks, and I shaved it off, came right off. I look beautiful today. Uh, people have noticed how smooth and cherubic my cheeks are. So extremely pleased with the Harry's experience. And you too can experience a clean, close, comfortable shave with Harry's. Again, first-time customers get $5 off when they go to harrys.com and use the promo code SAUL. That's harrys.com and the promo code SAUL, S-A-U-L. And now back to our podcast. So one of the broader things that I wanted to talk about uh, in terms of this show is how many monologues there are. I mean, this show is just Bob Odenkirk talking. Mm-hmm. Every, basically every scene Bob, Bob Odenkirk is in, and then basically every scene he's giving these long speeches. And the way that these get used is interesting. Um, he talks, and you mentioned this earlier, June, he talks himself around to understanding how he feels about things. Yeah. And as he as he rattles off these staccato machine gun riffs, he starts out um, thinking one thing, and then he sort of um, uh, through a, a sort of Hegelian uh, dialectic, he eventually comes around to understanding what it is he wants, what he cares about, what's important, what other people's needs are. Um, And I was thinking about how other shows use monologues. And I remember when Deadwood, the HBO show, was on, the the show set in the the Pioneer West uh, or in sort of Gold Rush West, people talked about how it was reviving the Shakespearean monologue. Characters in that show would give these long, very carefully written monologues with uh, incredibly precise use of language. This isn't exactly those kinds of monologues. The language here, I would not say, is quite as precisely crafted, mm-hmm. but th- there's room for Bob Odenkirk to use his his wit, his um, fast, his his quick tongue, mm-hmm. um, and it, we develop the character through these monologues. I was thinking about um, Mad Men. Is another place where monologues mm-hmm. got used, and one way we learned about Don, Don Draper was when he would stand at the front of a conference room to give an advertising pitch. This is how we're going to market Hershey's, or this is how we're going to Kodak Carousel. Exactly, the classic one, Kodak Carousel. And those monologues were a way to to show Don's um, competence as an mm-hmm. ad guy, but also to reveal something about Don's inner character. We would see him lift the veil a little bit psychologically. When he gave those monologues, we learned a little bit about where he was coming from, how he viewed the world, and parts of his personal history would slip in there. So it'll be interesting to ke- see how these monologues keep um, being used uh, in yeah, Better Hall. Yeah, for sure. And it's really interesting. It's, it's a part of Bob Odenkirk's talent, I think, that he can make them appear extemporaneous. I mean, I am convinced as I'm watching the show that Jimmy is always on, he's always panicking underneath a barely controlled exterior. And he, because he, that's the one thing he has faith in is, is, you know, that's worked for him in the past. He can talk his way out of stuff. And the fact that he does come across uh, or he, he gets to a point where we, you know, where he's figured something out, it's really impressive and it does he has me convinced that he is doing that in the moment. You know, when he goes to the house, I mean, why on earth he would end up in that house? It was a moment of like, let's go to the, you know, just a kind of a panic move. And he's walking, you know, the thing that cops haven't seen, what's he going to see? And yet he's, he kind of makes you think that, yeah, he, he made this Sherlock Holmes observation. You know, later the cops say, yeah, we noticed that. But it's still pretty impressive. 
Also, I'll be interested to see how the title sequence of the show yes. develops over time because I noticed there was a new title sequence, unless I missed it before. We had it, these bright red painted nails, maybe from the nail salon, um, sort of flicking some cigarette ash into the scales of justice, using the scales of justice as an ashtray, which I thought was a beautiful image as the title sequence for this show. It really put all together sort of the noir, the, the bright sunshine noir of Albuquerque, um, the law, uh, the femme fatale. So I thought it was, it was a great title sequence. And uh, it was the first time we saw it. And I wonder if they'll uh, put together new title sequences all the time or if this will be the recurring sequence. We will see. Well, before we go, June, we did get a listener email about last week's episode. This was our listener Elizabeth's reaction to episode two. She wrote, I'll give it a few more episodes because I hope it will improve. Originally, I think I read it would be a 30-minute show. I feel like they don't have enough interesting material for an hour-long show. Many of the scenes made me think of skits on SNL that go on too long. And I didn't like the montage of Saul at the courthouse. It went on way too long. What do you think, June? Do you agree with Elizabeth? I do to a certain extent. I'm She's very definitely right about that courtroom montage. That was too many hit show times. It was about double as long as it could <laughs> yeah, have been. We just saw that coffee, you know, yeah. pouring out of the coffee up, dispenser up, again and again. Up. And it was indeed going to be a 30-minute show. It was going to be a comedy. Uh, and I think it was a good move, actually. I, I'm more into it. I, I'm glad it became a drama. I don't know that I would have wanted to watch a comedy based on, you know, this morally corrupt uh, universe. Um, but I'm actually getting more gripped. I, 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 I was with Elizabeth after the first couple of episodes, but um, I do want to know what's going on with the, all that money in that tent. Yeah, I'm with you. It has been unfolding slowly. She, Elizabeth mm-hmm. is totally right. Some of the scenes are very slow. That scene out in the desert when the negotiation went on forever, and, and in the end it was worth it, I thought. And all his wandering. I mean, it seemed like he set out when it was light and ended up, you know... At, at the kids' bedtime, uh, why would he? Why did we see so much wandering? That that was an unnecessary uh, sort of padding, I think. Yeah. But yeah. You know, I, I where I'm sitting, I can see our producer Joel through his little glass window, and he's been googling like a fanatic, and and he, there seems to be steam coming out of his ears. I think he has something he wants to tell us about. Uh, his, the results that he's found. Yeah. You know, Seth, you had mentioned you had uh, Googled uh, Chicago sunroof on your phone a little nervously about what the search might return. I went to my preferred search engine, which is not Google, it's urbandictionary.com, mm-hmm. and Googled Chicago sunroof. Still no results, but I did get two hits that were sort of close. One is something called a Westchester hot potato, <laughs> and the other is just an urban dictionary term that's just simply moonroof. Uh, Uh, And I won't go into the particulars of both. Uh, A moonroof is a term of praise for a certain part of the body. Joel, this is a family show. And (laughs) also, uh, the Westchester hot potato, this isn't a dirty one. This one's interesting. It is an extremely complicated procedure for multiple people to smoke pot in a moving car. It is the passing of the weed through the sunroof, out the window, back through the window while the car is in motion. That seems really ill-advised. I'm not sure. I was going to suggest, why don't we just go out and do that right now? If we hail a taxi with the moonroof, (laughs) can we just give it a go? I also also found several good locations for getting a sunroof installed in Chicago, (laughs) including apparently Damon Auto Repair and Body Shop located at 1743 North Damon Avenue. Is that owned by a relative, Joel? (laughs) Are they they a sponsor of this podcast? (laughs) They're about to be. They're not. They are not a sponsor, except if you are interested, Damon Auto Repair and Body Shop, please email us at podcasts at slate.com. Well, until next time, I'll be Westchester hot potatoing up a storm, June. And I'll be drinking cucumber water. Shopping at the Walmart short
just a couple of beans. There's a George Foreman grill down the back of your blue jeans. They got you at the checkout, the blue lights blink, only one got a call, cause the others all stink. Better call Saul, better call Saul. Thanks for listening to this Slate TV Club podcast. Please join us next time when we'll be talking about Better Call Saul, Episode 4. And check out our other recent TV podcasts about Downton Abbey, The Walking Dead and The Americans. Just go to iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. Please drop us a line if you have any responses to things that we've said or things that we should talk about at podcasts at Slate.com. Our producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Put down your space blanket, Seth, and say goodbye. Bye, June. Bye. I'm David Plotz. This week on the Slate Political Gab Fest, the gazillionaire, the student, Stanford University, a sexual assault case, and the confusing, dreadful gender politics of Silicon Valley. Look for us in the Slate store on iTunes or at slate.com slash podcasts.